Hello and welcome to the first political party recorded in front of a live audience for nearly a year and a half. This was such a special night. I loved every second of it. And to be back on stage in front of such a wonderful crowd in such a beautiful venue was just, I think I'll remember that night for the rest of my life. It was a real moment and the atmosphere. I don't think it was just that people were excited to see uh, my guests and to be um, at the political party. I think just in general, it felt very symbolic to be at an event again. And uh, I didn't expect to feel kind of as, as affected by it as I was, but wow. Uh, so thank you to all of you who came. You made it a really special night. Thank you to um, my guests. Of course, today's episode is Peter Mandelson. He was on the podcast a few months ago. This is even more hilarious. Even more Peter Mandelson than he was last time. It's absolutely incredible. I will come on to that in a second. Don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Let us know unusual or strange places that you've seen or encountered politicians. Adam got in touch. He says, in February 2018, we took the kids skiing to St. Foy in France and took them out of school for a week. We were in the ski hire shop and I saw a familiar face and did the ridiculous thing of blurting out, it's Nick Clegg. To which Nick Clegg said, I know, hello. The kids came round the corner and Clegg said, it's not half term, is it? Shouldn't they be in school? To which I said, let's not mention that again and I won't say anything about the election. Fortunately, he laughed rather than fill me in. I mean, Adam, what a story that would have been. He then knocked me out uh, and was a thoroughly nice chap. I kept seeing him ducking out of bars for a cigarette. Well, this is now becoming a Nick Clegg strand. There's been a couple of stories about people encountering Nick Clegg. I think the other one was at a party conference, but whoever you've seen out there in the wild, particularly if it's in an odd setting, let us know, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I'm recording this, by the way. Uh, the morning, I'm, I'm about to head off to uh, the Garrick Theatre for the for the next recording, which is Andrea Letterman and Keir Starmer, which I'm very, very excited about. There's one more show left you can get tickets for. That's on the 2nd of June, and that's with two brilliant guests, Esther McVeigh and Jess Phillips. Jess has been on before, always delivers. I've never uh, interviewed Esther McVeigh before. I've been trying for years to get her on, so I'm really, really excited about that. There's a few tickets left. You can get them on the link in the blurb to the show in the show notes or just go to mattford.com slash live so peter mandelson oh my god this is he is so funny and this is a this is really the perfect political party live show because it has a, a great mix of what you would expect mandelsonian searing political insight and just that blunt common sense for want of a better phrase, that, that defines so much of New Labour, that you can dress it up in all this stuff, but it, at its heart, there's something completely straightforward at the heart of it. And he delivers that. And the playfulness, the wit, the charm, the, the almost at times deliberate pantomime menace. He is a phenomenal character and he made it such just a fantastic night. It's also the first time I've performed stand-up in nearly a year and a half. So, I mean, not a bad way to come back by doing a set at the Garrick. So uh, there's a bit of stand-up at the start of this, which is, I feel so alien. It feels like it was such a long time ago that I was on stage performing stand-up, let alone interviewing people. So in a way, even though we still have a long way to go, this episode represents a huge step back towards normality. It's recorded in front of a live audience. There is stand-up of varying quality at the start of it, and there is a brilliant guest. It is my great pleasure 
to say welcome back to the Political Party live shows and enjoy the show. Thank you so much for coming. Doesn't this feel amazing? I mean, I realise this is a bigger deal for me than it is for you, but oh my God. Thank you so much for coming out when, you know, I mean, you know, breaking news, it's been shit for about a year and a half, but fuck, this is the coolest. I don't know if you, has anyone been to the political party before? Yes. Well, thank you, regulars. We're not usually in such nice a place. We're usually in the side room at the other palace, which I've uh, grown to love over the last eight years, but this is, it's a bit better, isn't it? This is more like it. So thank you so much for coming out wherever you've come from tonight. This is just such a special night. But this, this couldn't have happened had you not come out tonight. So this is just, we're all in this together um, for want of a well, fucking ditch coalition references. I've got a new act for you, by the way, so don't worry about that. But uh, it's just so cool. I'm just so pleased you all care. I sound like such a loser. I don't think any other comedian has ever opened with this. I'm just so glad you turned up. This is really nice. Actually, for once, someone's bought a ticket. What a novelty. Oh, thank you. Oh, God. Oh, that's really kind of you. I, I, I saw this house here. I saw Frank Skinner here before, uh, before COVID. So, uh, I never actually imagined I'd be... Uh, anyway. Got some political impressions for you as well. Don't worry about that. Um, it's just so fucking cool, isn't it? it just fe- I don't know if I'm speaking for you now, but it just feels like this is a sign that life is returning to normal is me doing some fairly shit impressions that die in the rust. <laughs> and uh, we'll forget COVID ever happened. But, oh, man. Just thank you so... Genuinely, thank you so much for coming. And, uh, obviously, we have a very special night ahead. And uh, I should say at the start, just as a health warning, uh, for any members of the hard left in the audience, I know it can feel weird being at a political gathering in central London without an inflatable anti-Semitic effigy. Um, I'm going to try and get one for the second half, so... Uh, See what Keir Starmer makes that joke tomorrow night. That's, uh... <laughs> We're going to have Keir Starmer, who has stamped his authority on the Labour Party leadership by uh, sounding a bit like Josh Widdicombe, uh, mainly, if you want to know uh, how to do a Keir Starmer impression. Uh, I'm not entirely sure everyone knows what he sounds like, to be honest, but uh, basically start with Josh Widdicombe. And, uh, Go a bit deeper. And, uh, that's not a partridge, but uh, you... Let's <laughs> start with Josh Whittaker, madam, and, and just sound a bit more annoyed. I, I agree with the government, Mr Speaker. I agree with the government, Mr Speaker. I agree with the government when they get it right. I disagree with the government when they get it wrong. <laughs> Which uh, is such a basic political position, but it shows how fucking insane the Labour Party's been for at least ten years that we all go... Well, he's actually quite good, isn't he? Yes. This guy's a genius. He agrees with people when they're right. Have you heard about this guy? When they're wrong, he doesn't agree with it. Fuck. It's a change, isn't it? I mean, it's like, genuinely, he says, I agree with the government when they get it right, I disagree with the government when they get it right. Like, that is a world away from Jeremy Corbyn, of course, which is, we disagree with the government when they get it wrong. We disagree with the government when they get it right. And can someone please send a copy of the sample to the Kremlin? So, it's big. It is, uh, it is progress of sorts, um, but uh, Keir Starmer apparently is going to, to try and revive his leadership fortunes, uh, is going to uh, allow an Access All Areas documentary about himself to be made, which uh, worked for Joe Exotic. <laughs> Why shouldn't it work for the leader of Her Majesty's Opposition? 
Um, so watching the documentary crew looking at all these beautiful, electable politicians being kept in a cage somewhere. That's Peter Kyle, he should be in government. You don't want to keep him in captivity. Louis Theroux walking around going, Kia, um, don't, don't you think you should try being electable? Or, 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 I just think maybe you should try getting elected. And then you can, you know, they've tried that already. Right, okay. could, be, could be like any number of big festivals, uh, any, uh, any number of big documentaries we enjoyed during lockdown, a uh, documentary about the Labour Party. could be like the Fire Festival about a uh, dysfunctional... <laughs> event that basically never happens. I just want to see Keir Starmer on screen going, if it comes to it, I will suck off Tony Blair. <laughs> and nothing wrong with it, obviously. But, uh, friend of the show, friend of the show. Uh, <laughs> it's even, it's even going on Piers Morgan's life stories. Keir Starmer. I mean, what? Come on, no reputable politician. Why is he letting himself being interviewed by some chubby, opinionated blowhard? Uh, <laughs> We'll be asking him this tomorrow night, live on this very stage. Uh, but the, he's got trouble with the Labour left, more than the Labour right, really. It's the Labour left that are really animated against uh, Starmer. Apparently, at a meeting of Labour MPs last, last week, uh, numerous members, including Diane Abbott and Richard Bergen... Uh, exactly, yeah. Uh, it's like we just immediately step back into the old ways. It? It's like Covid never happened. Richard Bergen, fuck it. Uh. Real sense of togetherness at these first gigs back. Um, have urged him not to drop any element of the 2019 manifesto. That is primarily, of course, because they're fucking thick. <laughs> Everything sort of flows from that, really. Um, <laughs> John McDonnell has said if Labour wants to win the next election, it needs to be angrier. Oh, that's how you win over those genteel middle ground voters. That's what I want in a Prime Minister. Charisma, vision and borderline rage. That went over those lid. <laughs> but yes, uh, Ed Miliband. I mean, this is part of the problem when you think about it, is that Labour is trying to... Labour's trying to solve a puzzle that it thinks is impossible, but really isn't impossible. I hear this from so many pundits saying, and how can Labour ever bring back a coalition of middle-class voters and working-class voters? And I'm saying, I just can't do it. Can't find a way to get these middle-class guys over here and these working-class guys over here to sort of unite over something. I mean, what would those people who live on the same tiny island have all been through this bonding experience, what could they possibly have in common? It's the most stupid... We've got loads of things in common. The number one thing Labour needs to do to get votes anywhere in the UK is stop being shit. <laughs> That's the first... If you stop being shit, then you'll be amazed how many people from middle and working-class backgrounds look at you in a new way. Step two, stop listening to anyone to the left of Ed Miliband. <laughs> Just stop listening. Stop buying The Guardian. Stop listening to... I mean, Ed Miliband, by the way, who lost the 2015 election. I don't think Labour have really done any analysis on why they lost any of the last four uh, elections um, at all. General elections, not just all those other ones they've lost in between. In that time. We're talking about World Cups here, not the Euros or the, uh, the Nations League, like by elections. Uh, no analysis at all. And Ed Miliband is the shadow business secretary. The man who lost the 2015 election is Labour's voice on business. Imagine him at the CBI. He's the fucking he's Labour's business person. Look, you, me, look, uh, it's great to be here at the CBI. Thank you. 
you know, you guys, look, I get business. I do. <laughs> I get it. You know, demand and supply, supply demand. You know, uh, you know, rip people off, pay people, you know, under their market value on zero hours contract, contract so they can't pay the bedroom tax. You know, I get it. But you, know, you may look at me as some sort of, you know, Marxism obsessed eco loser who only cares about private enterprise when it sponsors my podcast. Uh, and you'd be right. Uh, <laughs> he gave an interview this week to The Guardian. I just broken my own two rules. But he, uh, he gave an interview to The Guardian that I read and uh, he said, um, looking back now on, on what Jeremy Corbyn did, I think the real lesson of my leadership in 2015, I should have been bolder. That's what you take from the last 10 years, is it? You should have, you should have been more left-wing. That's what I genuinely looked at that and gone, I should have gone even harder and faster, actually. I think that, that would have worked. There's several levels of unrepentantness. Okay, yeah, we're back. We're back. Whoa. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I take your point. Um, it's just incredible that that's his lesson. I mean, like Lance Armstrong going, no, 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 I, I hear you, I hear you, I, I, I get it. Look, I get, I fucked up. Uh, I should have done more drugs. Actually, it wouldn't be Lance Armstrong, would it? Because he won, so uh, I'm trying to think of... <laughs> I didn't really hear about the ones that lose so much. Um, apparently, uh, Keir Starmer tried to reshuffle Angela Rayner. There's so many more new personalities, of course, we've got to get used to. Angela Rayner, Labour's deputy leader, so she can't be moved from that, uh, elected by the membership, but apparently tried to demote her, um, and she was having none of it. I mean, <laughs> do you imagine trying to reshuffle Angela Rayner? We're not trying to, we're not trying to argue with Liam Gallagher. <laughs> Basically impossible. Keir... You come near me, I'll break your fucking arm. <laughs> if he is going to make a documentary with her around, it's going to be more like Supersonic. <laughs> like I, you know, we were just four kids from a council estate, right? And we went on to be the best fucking shadow cabinet on the fucking planet. <laughs> don't I? I don't give a fuck, don't I? I don't, I don't give a fuck, right? All these people saying all we're doing is ripping off Neil Kinnock. I think Neil Kinnock's fucking kill. Cool. <laughs> Neil Kinnock's a fucking man. I'm not in a fucking rivalry. Rivalry with a fucking Tory party. We're not in a fucking rivalry. At the end of the day, our policies are fucking banging and there's a fucking shite and that's the end of it. <laughs> See if that makes the documentary or not. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take it to the next level up now with a phenomenal guest. Someone who's never done one of the live shows before. I interviewed, uh, interviewed him a few months ago on the show over Zoom, but I had to get him in front of an audience because... He's not just one of my political idols. He is one of the most talented political brains this country has ever produced. What he has to say tonight will be fascinating and funny and entertaining, I'm sure, in equal measure. Please give a rousing political party welcome to one of the greatest brains in the history of British politics, Peter Mandelson! I mean, Matt, it would be more impressive if you didn't say that about everyone. <laughs> Your podcast, every single week, the most brilliant, my idol, my pin-up. He, he is amazing. He has achieved so much. He's got such a brain. About anyone. 
it's, it's true about everyone I say it about. I mean, At that it, moment. Well, um, no, I, no. Come on. But I do get wonderful guests, so what am I supposed to say? Oh, today's Mo- guest You get mostly it? wonderful guests, they're not all. I mean... So who's not been wonderful? People you've never heard of. I mean, you're obscure. What about that special advisor person? Who'd ever heard of... <laughs> oh, my God! I can't start slagging off the back catalogue. It's like a rat in a moment. And by the way, where's the whiskey you promised me? Well, I... What is that cheap, screwed-up... <laughs> Did somebody leave that at your house after your last party? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, this looks great. Well, you know uh, what? You, I malt whiskey, you promised me. I, honestly. Actually, you said you're going to bring two bottles to get me going. <laughs> These are private messages. Um, I thought you were joking when you said whiskey. And I wrongly had you more down as a red wine kind of guy. Did you? How little you know. <laughs> And I thought... I mean, I don't object to red wine, but there is red wine and red wine. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's screwed up because of COVID. That it was oh. safer than bringing in a... Oh, uh, my God. It's, for, it's a Falkland special. <laughs> it's Trivento from Argentina. See? Reserve Malbec. <laughs> bottled... Last year. Um, <laughs> yes, but it, 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 it's existed longer than that. It was only bottled last year. Okay. Well, shall there's I, only um, one way to find out. Shall we it? open it or shall I take it home? Oh, you. It you might be a... the only nice thing I leave tonight with. That and fond memories. Well, memories. <laughs> memories. Well, have a bit. Can I can't I... have any. I can't. I've got. um, Oh, sorry. Are you? I've got gout. Have you? (laughs) I've got gout. Yeah, I can't drink until. uh, No, come on. Be serious. I'm being serious. Yeah. Are you? I'm meant to be interviewing you. What's happened? Are you on penicillin? (laughs) I'm on allopurinol and colchicine and prednisolone. You're pregnant. (laughs) You're what? I'm on on steroids. Why am I telling you everything? I don't know. I thought you were going to interview me. What's the matter with you? Well, you've kind of come in and taken over. I can't, I can't open... Uh, this doesn't oh, open. come on. Put you back in... Oh, there you go. I honestly can't drink at the moment because of, I do have gas. No, we don't want to know the details of your... <laughs> the, the, the sommelier said it's better out of a plastic cup as well. The sommelier over at Shop Express. <laughs> oh, it's got a nice sort of top to it. It's very... Is it... It's fizzy. <laughs> it's, it's not fizzy. It, this is look at that. That is fizzy. I don't want to get within two meters. Oh no, that's just you shook it when you were trying to undo the top. That's just um, that's just natural. With with fine wines like that, they often fizz because of the um, no no no. I know the that of the sediment. Yeah, Maison Rutard. I mean that lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Lafitte, fizzy, fizzy Lafitte. How does it taste? I was, I was hoping I could adjust. Oh, hello. What? There's usually a pot plant that you can. <laughs> um, 
Hold on, are you ready? <laughs> oh, it's delicious. <laughs> oh, thank God for that. Oh my God, that is some wine. <laughs> um, no, it's, <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> Next time I, I will, I thought you were joking with whiskey. I thought it was a mind game. Me, me, play mind games? <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, what am I, some sort of prince of darkness? I would never use that phrase. No, not, you better not. Not too fast. I'm, I'm the dark lord now. Do you prefer dark lord or prince of darkness? Well, I don't know, really. Dark Lord's better, isn't it? That suggests there's more I, senior. I just feel it's, yeah, I feel as if I've gone up in the world. Where do you go from there? God. Mm. Bad God. <laughs> yeah, just looking down from up there on everyone, pulling the strings. Yeah. Sounds great. That, that's what they have me down as doing at the moment for, for, key, uh, for not keys. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's your fault, because you were telling me in the... before we came in. You shouldn't have done that. <laughs> my fault, what you said. Kia. Do you think, as, as political insults go, calling him Keith is effective? Well, at least they know his name. But if someone, call, you know, if they called you Paul instead of Peter, would that have wound you up? I wouldn't be pleased. No, I don't like Paul. Paul is... I suppose it's better than Brian. Is there a particular Brian Gould in, in mind? Or... No. No. Nobody remembers Brian Gould. Who, who here so... remembers Brian... Remember... God, you're older than I thought. <laughs> Just a, a, a learned and politically aware audience. Oh. What's the matter? Never heard of Brian Gould. <laughs> I've often said after... He never uh, forgave me, Brian Gould, I'm afraid. He's one of many who never forgave me. Brian thought that I was going to make him leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> then along came Tony Blair and it was a difficult choice. <laughs> we weighed them up, reflected on it, took a punt, went for Tony... Brian never forgave me and it left the country, went off to run a university in Australia. Tutu in New Zealand. New Zealand, that was it. I knew he'd gone to the Southern Hemisphere, quite far away from you. Yeah, he hates me. He really does. I mean, he was furious. Really? But like... No, well, no, he was. I so, mean, okay. it's ludicrous. On a scale... I mean, this is going back to the 1990s? 80s? Early, late 80s, early 90s. Um, on a scale of... Not to Gordon. <laughs> Gordon and me are... We're together again, me and Gordon. How is it? Do you speak too much? Um, I've spoken to him this year. Okay. Just the once? Twice. Okay, so New Year's Day, Happy New Year. 
What was the second one? He doesn't do New Year's Day. <laughs> Too busy working. No, he rang me actually because there's a, a big um, BBC documentary, uh, a five-part, six-part documentary about New Labour, which is meant to be starting... I haven't seen any trailer for it at all, actually. It's meant to be June, July. Where are we, May? Yes, May the 24th, Monday. Um, <laughs> so, Gordon... Gordon hadn't spoken to me for some considerable time. But on the day I was doing, starting my interview for the documentary, <laughs> where I was, you know, giving the old inside track on, you know, TBGB, <laughs> he rings and says, oh, hello, how are you doing? I said, oh, I'm fine, Gordon. He said, um, ah, I gather you're doing this interview then. Um, it wasn't me. <laughs> I said, sorry? He said, it wasn't me. I said, it wasn't you what? He said, I, I didn't push you out of the government. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. <laughs> it was the other guy. And I said, Gordon, don't worry. I'm not going to be speaking. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm over it. <laughs> sort of, on a good day. <laughs> um, but that was indeed... <laughs> he said, it wasn't me. I didn't think about it. I was amazed. I said, you don't think that, you know, I said, which, which one of the defenestrations are you talking about? I mean, the, the first or the second or the... And uh, I said, you do remember the first. It was, your, it was your guy, Charlie Whelan, you know, who pushed all this information about my loan, my mortgage loan, uh, to that horrible journalist who splashed it in the garden. He said... Oh, I was, a, I, was a, I was surprised as anyone else. I opened the paper, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I said, Gordon, everyone knew about it. He said, yeah, I know, I know. It was, it, it, was, it was just about nothing, wasn't it? I mean, it was ridiculous. I said, sorry about your job. Um, yeah, so was I, I said. Anyway, it was... I couldn't have been nicer about him. But then What's I'm very generous and I'm very forgiving. I am well known for this. <laughs> I don't hold grudges. <laughs> Although I can make a start, Matt. <laughs> well, I, I feel like I've got off to a bad start with the wine. It hasn't been a great beginning, no. <laughs> um, anyway, what do you want... What exactly do you want to talk about? Well, why, why am I here? <laughs> People often ask themselves this at my gigs. Do you know I've come all the way from Wiltshire for this? <laughs> so much I do for, appreciate it's it. It's my third... It's, it's, it's one I... Second, third time in London this year. Well, I appreciate it. Everyone here appreciates it. Do you appreciate it or not? <laughs> this feels... I mean, the reception you got at the start was like 1997 all over again, Oh, wasn't it? God, yeah. <laughs> it's like Royal Festival Hall all over again. Five o'clock in the morning, a new dawn is born. A new dawn sort of, is born? A new dawn has broken, has a it new, A new, do, new dawn has broken. Hasn't it? I'm not sure exactly. What was it? <laughs> How old were you then? Fourteen. Fourteen. Mm. Look at me now. Gout ridden. That's what New Labour did to you. <laughs> it is. Too many years living high on the hog, thanks to the longest period of economic growth in our country's history. Do you have it in your big toe? <laughs> What, the longest period of economic growth in our country? <laughs> yes. That's just your toenail. 
Um, <laughs> yes, you, it's the joint of the big foot, it's there. It's there, I know. The right foot, yeah. Actually, funnily enough, this is a bit of, you know, you and me <laughs> opening up to one another and sort of... <laughs> I've got a funny big toe as well. <laughs> Should we have a look? Who'd like to see Are you ready big for this? Time? No, I don't think so. I have it. So can I just ask you something? You know, with your big toe, you yeah. the, gout, the gout one, the gouty yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Does it sort of come out like that? Do you have it sort of like it protruding that way, but it hurts up here? Um, no, by the way, I just want to be clear: toe isn't code. No, mine's, although it is quite big. It's, um, it's, um, it's just on the ball of the joint of the right foot. So, no, um, that's what I've got. Yes, yeah, so it flares a bit, it can um, swell up. No, here, like, like on the ball of the foot or on the side. Yeah, on the side, on the side here. of that joint on the right here. foot, yeah. Okay. You couldn't... <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. Oh, my God. Let me get two metres behind you and just... Uh, it, it's it's a big, a bit gouty. It's a big bump here. Yeah, but you know what? Have, have you been? That no, I have like... not been. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it looks I, I'm, like I'm, I'm two meters away from the sheep. I don't do anything. <laughs> it looks like you've worn a new pair of shoes and no, you've just I done have this not thing. worn a new pair of shoes. It does look a bit gouty here, and yeah. and I come down on it a bit like. Yeah, is this? How long have you had this problem for? About two months. And um, does it... Do you know, this is the most useful thing. I, I... It's not how I imagined this was going to go. You are handy. <laughs> but I have literally sent a photograph at the end of last week to my GP, who's in London, but I'm in Wiltshire, so I never see him. Yeah. So I've sent him... Should move photo... GP would be my first <laughs> advice. So I've sent... I took a photograph... <laughs> Does it flare up when you consume things like um, red meat, alcohol, asparagus? Are there triggers? Do you notice it when you've consumed anything like, uh, you know, a high-quality screwed-up red? God, what the hell's that going to do to me, that one? Um, no, I don't feel like that. I feel it's just there, and it's not sharping. It's not shooting pain. It's slightly throbbing. Okay. What, what, what's yours like? It sounds like it could... Well, mine... Uh, sorry about this. Um, I woke up with it in the night, and I had been... That's lovely. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. And I thought... How long did it last? <laughs> Days. My God. <laughs> Come on, you're taking a pill. No. <laughs> what are you talking... Let's get back to your toe, please. I'm not... I'm not interested in the old, what you do. <laughs> I thought I'd injured it on my exercise bike because I'd been exercising a lot during the first lockdown and it felt like a metatarsal issue. It was misdiagnosed initially and uh, it then emerged off a blood test that it was gout and the pain was indescribable. Really, really, actually quite... Well, mine isn't quite like that, but I am going to the Royal Free tomorrow at 4.30 for a blood test to see what the presence of uric... Yes, uric acid levels. Uric acid. That's exactly where I get my blood tests. Did you book into the website? You're joking. Using, and you know what? No, no, no. I'm going to talk you through it now. I bet you've had to book it using a system called SwiftQ. And you've I had your text. They've had a text. Yep. 
Yeah. I thought it was one of those phony bogus ones that they send. It's uh, like a um, scan. It's automated, yeah. but you get it straight away. You go, I have got a blood test at the Royal Free at 14.30 or whatever time. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's great. You what? Get on with the politics. Yes. Get on with the politics. Going <laughs> for gout stories. So, Gordon Brown. Did he have gout? I think that was the root of the problem. <laughs> it put him in a bad, ratty mood, you know, with Tony. If it hadn't been for the gout, they would have been fine. <laughs> he didn't want his job at all, you know. It was all a myth. Did you... Because you, you were initially closer to Gordon, as is well documented. I was. And then you became closer to Tony. Around, but... That's not true. You, so you were never closer to Tony? That is not true. I was completely equidistant. I did not favour one or the other when the time came. But Gordon felt that you did? Yes. And do you think you, you might have done anything around that time that would have given him that impression? Absolutely not. I, I helped him a lot. I spent more time with him. I helped him. I did... I mean, I really was as neutral as you could possibly be. Indeed, Tony was the one who was ratty with me. Tony thought, oh, mm -hmm. So when did he get ratty with you? He got ratty on me very quickly because he thought I was siding with Gordon. And is this quickly once New Labour in office or once he... No, 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 on the, like, day one, after, I'm afraid... Look, when John had his heart attack that morning, uh, the first <laughs> call I got uh, was from Gordon and he said, come, come round to my flat. And I was round there by... 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning, talking about, you know... Leadership. The campaign. And Tony found that out. So he was not pleased. And how did he, how did he voice that displeasure? He sent a message saying, I suggest that we meet. And we met at 4 o'clock that afternoon in an empty division lobby of the House of Commons. And he came one way, I came the other, and we sort of met in the middle, and he said, uh, I gather you're supporting Gordon. I said, no, I'm not supporting Gordon. I'm not supporting, supporting. I'm just... Look, it's the most brilliant, sort of, in a sense, tragic death, obviously, but opportunity for one of you modernisers to realise everything that we've been talking about, to, you know, transform the Labour Party and make it into a really strong electable party and and he said well are you going to support me i said i don't think it's i don't think we should be having that discussion i think we, you should talk to each other and i and i think he said um, well don't talk me down i said i'm not going to talk you down i said given that I mean, he'd already got off to a flying start within hours, frankly, because it, a lot of people gravitated towards him. And I said, it might be fairer if perhaps I talked Gordon up a bit and just made him not feel so... He said, OK, just don't talk me down. And did, he, did he point at you like that? He didn't point. There was just that little sort of Tony-ish sort of, you know... Mm -hmm. you know. Were you aware then, at that point then, because there's a dynamic between those two, but there's a dynamic that you have, it's a triangle, 
at that point, they were more established in terms of the front bench and the public. Yeah, but I was more powerful. <laughs> well, th that's because I'd been the campaign director, well, I'd been the I'm communications director, and what everyone thought stupidly was that. You know, I pulled the, all the strings, I wrote the headlines, I decided who went on television and, you know, I cast the Today programme and everything else, and all of that is absolutely true, I did. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I'm, this is 1980s. This is when I was working for Kinnock. I started with Kinnock, remember. Yeah. I started on my 31st birthday in 1985. I am older than I look. <laughs> Just before we come on to Kinnock, though. 21st of October, if anyone wants to make a note on my birthday. Get your nice bottle of screw top red to commemorate it. Yes, um, I can't wait. But I'd love to ask you about Kinnock. But just on you and, and Tony and Gordon, you're a moderniser. You had to level a profile. You're a Labour MP. That was 92. Kind of I was only... They had gone in in 83. Yeah. I only became an MP in 92. But before that, I was the campaign director. But there's the no communications guy, the media guy. <laughs> And they bo were both very, very urgent and desperate for publicity. And everyone thought, well, I was pushing them forward. Brian Gould was apoplectic, going, going back to Brian Gould. Uh, he was brilliant on the media, and then he found himself being eclipsed. And he blamed me. They all blame me. I've been blamed all my life. I'm still being blamed by these people. But was there no part of you that thought, I should be standing in this leadership contest, it's not these two? Well, not, not really, because I'd only been an MP since 92. But as you say, you've been very powerful. You've been the campaign director. You'd had a level of power within the party that they hadn't enjoyed. You had a level of status. I did, and politicians, all the front bench, the shadow cabinet, were all queuing up and trying to make me cast them on breakfast TV. It was quite big in those days. <laughs> um, but no, I, 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 I mean, I, that's the route I took into the party machine. So now, you talk about making Labour this electable force. It hasn't been done again since. I'm going to be talking to Keir Starmer tomorrow night. What's your advice for him on how to recreate those heady days of winning? He's got to be more like Tony Blair than Ed Miliband. I beg your pardon. <laughs> Ed, thanks for coming. Really sorry about the first time. <laughs> you didn't tell me. Look, Ed, I'm right behind. I'm... No, I mean, I don't mean that. I mean that seriously, not nastily. I mean, we have just lost our fourth general election, okay? Before we were elected in 1997, we had lost four general elections. Over 40 years, 11 general elections, we've only won three. Blair, Blair, Blair. Blair. So I'm not saying we have to turn the clock back and you know reheat all the policies and be all new Labour all over again, but you know we had an approach uh, to winning, and it might not be a bad idea if Keir were to think how we did it, what was the approach. How did we sort of dissolve some of those barriers and divisions and opposition to us in order to create a campaign that produced the biggest landslide victory in modern political history? 
Why is the Labour Party... <laughs> and, yet, and yet you can't speak its name. You're not allowed in the Labour Party even to mention you, Labour. And why is that? Because it's not just about Iraq, is it? It's about something else. I, I think it is about something else. It's because there are people in the Labour Party who are just consumed by... I don't know, a sort of... by the past. By a sort of rigid, ideological belief that anyone who wants to modernise what we stand for uh, wants to set out socialism, uh, that we want to turn our back on our history, pull up our roots, um, and as Ed Miliband once said about us, spend too much time with businessmen. How much time? As if that were the biggest crime, <laughs> you know. Well, I, I mean, I think the public would agree, and, and, and election results certainly... Um, bear that out. But the Labour Party is a group of people that it seems are kind of in a, 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 if what you're saying is right, a kind of form of collective delusion where they are choosing to ignore the playbook that says if you do this you win. Well they hate, they, they just cannot bear to learn from our victories. They would rather dwell on our defeats. I mean we have had what, ten years, four more, <laughs> four, four more defeats in ten years. I mean Ed was uh, uh, elected leader because he wanted to change the country, ended up simply changing the party, which paved the way for Jeremy Corbyn, who I don't think seriously wanted to change the country. He didn't think about it very seriously, and he ended up nearly destroying uh, the party. Now, what Keir's got to do is, and I believe he is actually very serious and very sincere in wanting to change the country, but he's got to realise that he's only going to be able to do it if he changes the party first. Otherwise, he won't have the chance. But he is clearly a smart bloke. So is it Here, that? He is a smart guy. He's very professional. Um, he, he sort of drills down into issues, into problems. Um, you know, he's not a crowd pleaser. You know, he's not like bo boisterous Boris. You know, he's not a stand-up comedian. But do you really want to be run, a country to be run by a stand-up comedian? Well, with respect. Um, um, no, I mean, obviously there are stand-up comedians and stand-up comedians. Uh, but um, you're not going to turn nasty on me, are you now? Oh, you watch. Oh. Um, no, I mean, he, uh, in my view, in my view... <laughs> you winked at me in a way then. Oh, my God. Yeah. There's more where that comes from. <laughs> <laughs> um, but is it that, in your view, he ideologically does not believe in New Labour and thinks that, actually, I can still win an election to the left of New Labour? Is it that? Is it that he kind of agrees with New Labour, but he doesn't think the party does yet, and he's going to have to sort of be a sort of Kinnikan of Blair in one and tackle the party? No, I think he, he, he's on the left, no question about that but he's on the pragmatic modern left, I would say. And I think that's good because <laughs> we're, we're, we're the Labour Party, we are centre-left, so I'd rather have a leader who is on the left. But I also would like a leader who realises that elections are won on the centre ground. I mean, you have to appeal to the mainstream majority of this country. But for some people they say, well, we, we shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have to get Tory voters. 
Well, if they don't like us being Labour, then we're not going to not be Labour. Matt, you remember when I went out with that canvasser when I was a Lambeth councillor in, in the early 1980s, and we went on to an estate, and uh, I took the opportunity to say to my comrade, I said, you know, this is not a great period for the Labour Party, 1981, 82, Michael Foote, Tony Benn. I said, I think we've really got to listen more to the public. He, and you know what he, remember what he said to me? He said... Well, I think there's a limit to how much we can compromise with the electorate, you know. <laughs> and I said, sorry. I said, and that is what they believe. That if you, if you, if you move too, too much towards the voters, then you're selling out what you believe. Now, I do not believe for one moment that Keir uh, takes that view. But at the moment, there are people in the Labour Party who are trying to force him to make a choice between the two manifestos, the 2019 Everything for Free manifesto of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, and the 2017, 1970s retro Corbyn manifesto. And believe me, this debate is going on in the Labour Party now. Okay, the hard left want him to retain the 2019 Everything for Free. The soft left say, no, that was a great manifesto 2017 you know if only we'd put that forward if ed says you know if only i'd been bolder and you know etc both of these manifestos were product flops they were failures they were rejected by the public what on earth are we doing wasting a nanosecond deciding which of them we want to go back to <laughs> only only the labor party <laughs> you talked about earlier about labor dwelling on defeats um, I don't want to do that for too long, but Hartlepool happened. Yes, thank you. Okay, let's move on. Your old, uh, <laughs> your old stomping ground. You were up during, and you know what really struck me was the Labour Party was using you in publicity on social media, and if nothing else, that is proof that under Keir Starmer things are different because I don't think under Corbyn's leadership, Labour would have put a Peter Mandelson video out on their Twitter feed. I don't think so. <laughs> no. No, unless it was of me being trampled underfoot and left for dead uh, somewhere. But, no, I loved, I loved being in Hartlepool. I went back again and again and again to Hartlepool. It was actually, funnily enough, I hated the result, but the experience was one of the most life-affirming things I've done in recent years. Going back onto those estates, which have changed, by the way. They're smarter. They're now owner-occupied, most of them. Tidy gardens, different front doors. That's something that has changed since I left in 2004. Since you left, it sounds like it's flourished. <laughs> There's a nasty streak in you, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, no, there is. You're actually... It's all this sort of nice smiley. You're actually rather a... I mean, look, if anyone had told me 20 years ago and had tried to persuade me that Britain would have left the European Union, that Hartlepool would elect a Tory MP and that the Millennium Dome was the most incredibly popular and successful <laughs> <laughs> performance venue in Europe, I would not have believed them. <laughs> I was, as you recall, Mr Millennium Dome. Yeah. Uh, did, did you ever, I mean, I guess by what you just said, you didn't ever foresee it becoming this, this great success? I thought it would be great, but 
the great British media decided otherwise. But you know, the public, <laughs> they actually really enjoyed it. Anyway, let's not go back over that. The fact is, it has become incredibly successful. And I have friends who, whenever they go there, send me WhatsApps and messages saying, this place is brilliant. Thank you very much. See, anything I've ever really been thankful. <laughs> Apart from implementing the Good Friday Agreement, obviously, in Northern <laughs> Ireland, um, which I did. Um, it's ne negotiated a trade deal between the European Union and Central America. I did that. What else have I done in my life? <laughs> Got Labour elected three times. <laughs> small, small thing. <laughs> so, um, I don't want to keep going back to Tony and Gordon, but obviously that's a... Yeah, no, well, let's... It's a defining relationship. And the two huge... And you, the three of you, really impressive individuals in a way that no party since has had that that concentration of talent and its top people and people like Alistair Campbell and all the other people that were there as well Mo Molum, John Reed, David Blunkett, they were Tessa Jowell. They were all very big people, they were great ministers, they believed in the country and they changed it for the better and I'm very very proud of what they did. Very proud indeed. Because if you look at that new, obviously I go over it quite a lot, and you know the, the victory in '97 and 2001. And one thing I can't decide, and maybe you can help me, is would the scale of Labour's victory have been bigger or smaller were it not for having at least some left-wing appeal through people like, say, Claire Shaw? Does having a kind of left it's flank... It's a rather complicated question. I'm sorry, could you... Well, actually... Are you saying we, we could have done even better in 1997? Well, what I'm saying I is... I mean, there was virtually nothing that was left for the Tories. What are you talking about? Well, <laughs> what I'm saying is... In 1997, Labour still had quite identifiable left-wing figures that yeah. were of the left. People like John Prescott and Claire Short that were visible... Do you think they were in some way a help to keep... Yes, they were part of our coalition. Yeah. yeah. So actually, going forward... But they weren't running the party. No, but if, if Labour is to win again, it still needs... They weren't needs, in charge. I guess what I'm getting at is, do you still need people like that in the tent? Or has politics changed yes, you now? you do. No, we no, can no. expunge. No, 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 you do. You do. I mean, building, creating a result like that depends on building a massive electoral coalition. But the political geography of Britain has changed since 1997 rather dramatically. Well, you talk about the things I mean, you know, the Tories now get more support amongst low-income people than we do. You know that? Yeah. We have more support amongst um, higher earners, university graduates living in the South, than they do. I mean, we, we have just gone through a set of elections where we lost Teesside, but won Peterborough and Cambridgeshire. We, we, Norton. We, we lost the West Midlands, but won the West of England. Dorset and... Not Dorset, Somerset, Gloucestershire. I mean, something is happening, Matt, uh, to our politics, and it's really very interesting. I think that woman at the back was right. Let's go talk about, a bit about the politics. But, you know, what, what, what slightly irritates me 
because I do know my constituents, and I do know the north of east of England, and I do know that I represented Hartlepool to the best of my ability, and I do know, by the way, that my majority doubled and doubled again during the new Labour years because of what we did uh, for that town, uh, by the way, uh, underline. What slightly irritates me is the person who said to me last week in an interview, wouldn't it be better to have uh, more Angela Rayner for Labour in the North East because she knows about poverty and she knows what it's like being a single mum on benefits. And in a, at one level that is true, but at another level, what do they think the people in the North East are like? That they're all living in grinding uh, poverty with flat caps and whippets and <laughs> don't know which, you know, where the next square meal is going to come from? It were when you were an MP there. <laughs> <laughs> No, it might have been, you know, during the Tory, the famine years. <laughs> but, it's but, a good but, point, but I'm making a point, Matt, yes. here. People think that people in the North are sort of almost a race apart. They're not. They're sort of typical average voter, like anyone you'd meet in South London. I mean, they all have some things, they want more, they are very ambitious for their families, they're aspiring to... Uh, uh, to use the education system to get better jobs. I mean, you know, they want to be safe in the streets, okay? They do actually want a cleaner environment. They don't like uh, uh, pollution. Um, they want to get, they want to become better off. They want to improve their lives. They're not, as I say, living in grinding poverty and therefore only need to be spoken to in a sort of pseudo-Marxist way by sort of rigid-minded Labour Party ideologues telling them what's good for them. Hello? But, well... <laughs> Do you think there's a danger that... And not just Labour people have fallen into this trap, if you think about Brexit and Remainers and whatever else, that some parts of uh, the UK, or, or specifically actually in England, are, are described as the left behind, and that actually... I hate that expression. I absolutely hate it. I think there are people who felt left out because the whole national debate's dominated by the sort of metropolitan elite, the BBC crowd, people who, you know, the journalists, the lobby, you know, uh, you know the politically correct people. Yeah, I think, that, I think there are people who feel left out of the national conversation. But the people in my constituency who I re-met and talked to and went down their nice gardens and knocked on their nice uh, front doors uh, and engaged them in a conversation uh, about the Labour Party, not sweetness and light, I'll come back to that if you want, they are not people who feel left behind. If anything, they feel that the bloody southerners have been left behind. They feel sorry for them. On, on what basis? Well, because they think they have stronger, close-knit communities. They have a town they're very proud of. They have an identity that they derive from where they live. Because there is a Both the town and, and, and communities within the town. I mean, they, they, they don't want to go to Middlesbrough or... Newcastle, let alone London. But the I'm not saying that they're, I'm not saying that they're parochial. I'm saying that they're just proud of where they live. When I stood for election in 1992, I was stopped by a woman in the market who said, don't let anyone tell you uh, that, you know, that you're a southerner and therefore you won't be elected around here. Don't let people tell you 
uh, that, uh, you know, that we don't like outsiders. She said, your predecessor, she said, Ted Ledbetter, been there since 64. He wasn't from these parts. He came from Easington. <laughs> <laughs> but those people... That's seven miles up the road, by the way. Yes, I know. In case you don't know, because I know you're a bit of a southerner yourself. I'm from Nottingham. Are you really? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Nottingham Forest. <laughs> yeah, I've got my forest cufflinks on. Oh, I'm sure you have. Oh, it's OK, it's all no weird. You show me your toe! <laughs> cufflinks are... I know. ...classy, aren't they? But, um... A woman who came up to you in 1992 yeah. was talking about, you know, those people that might have seen you as an outsider. They would have yeah, underestimated Hartlepool and they would have underestimated you. Would well, they not? Well remembered. Because you are a fighter. Not, not a quitter. <laughs> 2001. That's right. That must have felt great saying that. It did, because I had all Arthur Scargill and his supporters barracking me from right in front. That's why I had to raise my voice. They were shouting at me. Arthur Scargill came and ran against me in, in the election in 2001. He thought he had me. He thought that was it. New Labour finished. <laughs> Mandelson out. Trampled all over him. <laughs> did you chat to him afterwards? No. <laughs> no. I know, he's, he's another humourless individual, completely <laughs> humourless. I was actually almost in near enough proximity to say hello to him, but he swerved and went off. Because I remember... Saved himself from having to speak to the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> I remember footage of you a few years ago at the yeah, Labour Party conference. Hmm? In, I think it was in Brighton. And there's a news crew there, and you're in the um, exhibition bit, and John McDonnell is nearby, and the TV crew say, oh, it's John McDonnell. And you immediately sort of latch onto him. And he, I think, basically shits himself. And he hated it. <laughs> Absolutely hated it. Yeah. And the more he backed away, the closer I went. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic footage. No, no, he absolutely hated it. It was because Michael Meacher, the late Michael Meacher, had that day called for my expulsion from the Labour Party. I can't remember what my crime was that day. <laughs> there, there are so many. There have been. Um, but he called, and so they wanted to ask uh, McDonnell whether he agreed with Michael Meacher that I should be expelled. So as to give them the opportunity, I gravitated with these crews towards John McDonnell so that he wouldn't miss the opportunity of telling them that, no, 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 I think... No, no, Peter should stay. Peter should stay. <laughs> sort of ripped us Peter, Peter should stay in the... <laughs> <laughs> ah. Get me out of here. <laughs> well, Do you enjoy those moments? Because obviously you have a coolness under pressure that other people don't have. So in a way, do you, do you relish the chances to not get one over on your enemies? But I guess me. get one over on your enemies. <laughs> Moi? <laughs> get one on my, on my enemies. Actually, you know, I prefer getting one over on the Tories than I do my own side. But the truth is that I have had to take on my own side during my political year, political career, more than I would have freely chosen. I'd have been so popular and so loved in the Labour Party if I had not had to take on my own side. But do you know, it was better being honest better making hard choices. I mean, I have, you know, 
What we are going through now in the Labour Party, I have been through twice before, once with Kinnock and the other with Blair. So I am used to this. You know, yeah, I mean, you obviously... Hard uh, knocks, hard choices. But you're and, I have and I have <laughs> learned something from this experience. How to avoid questions. <laughs> Why don't you pour myself some water? Are oh, bottled last year. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you're seen as the arch Blairite, but in his speech... I'll tell you the first thing I learned in the 80s under Kiddo <laughs> was that you can't, you can't win an election by some spray paint. It peels away. Did you try? Yeah, I did. It was called the Red Rose election. Do you remember? Yeah, 87. 87. It was, it was what Private Eye called Labour's brilliant election defeat. It was a brilliant campaign, mainly because of Kinnock's speeches and Hugh Hudson's great the party election broadcast. Those Labour people romanticising these defeats, Peter, they're tragic, aren't they? <laughs> I was actually trying to make a semi-serious point you know, <laughs> for the lady. Where is that lady? Can you speak up a bit? No, we tried to spray on an, an election victory in 1987, and we failed. And I realised that it's actually policy that counts. It's the core. You have to get your policy right, not the communications and not the spin. And we went into 1992, and frankly, we still haven't got the policy right. So I learned that in that election. And then we went off again, towards the next election, and I realised something else, that you cannot have perfectly both change in a, in a party and unity. That there has to be an argument, and that's what Blair gave us. He gave us an argument. He said, you're going to make a choice. We're going to choose a direction that this party is going to take, and once we've had the argument, once we've had the divisions, once we've taken the vote, everyone's got to unite, and we did, and it was a revolution, and that's what gave us our huge victory in 1997. The one that we missed in 87, the one we missed in 92, the spray paint, the bad policy, then we got everything right in 97, and the, and the country came to us, and we can do it exactly the same again, in my view. All these people who tell us that we're finished, as they do, that we can't do it, that we've just got to accept reality, the country's gone off, it doesn't want to know the Labour Party anymore. That's exactly what people said after our fourth defeat in 1992. But we didn't accept it. We fought back. And we fought, fought and fought again for the party we loved. And we changed the party, then we united, and then we ran the, a brilliant election campaign in 97, a genuinely brilliant election campaign, with policy at the heart of it, and we won, because the country came behind us. And we can do that again. But it takes more than tinkering. Yes. It takes more than tinkering. It takes more than choosing, oh, shall we have the 2019 manifesto <laughs> or the 2017 vote-losing manifesto? It takes more than that. And it takes more, I have to tell you, than saying, oh, let's be bold. Let's be bold. Bold. Actually, we need ideas. Yes. And they um, can be big ideas, <laughs> and they can be radical ideas, but they have to be modern ideas.
And the Labour Party, the problem with the Labour Party is they think that bold and radical means backward-looking. And that's where you lose people. They do not want old and familiar, <laughs> Matt. They want new and relevant. Yeah, you looked at me <laughs> like I'm not new and relevant. I <laughs> <laughs> feel very old. But uh, I want to ask you about Tony Blair because you're very close to him. You are a Blairite. But he refers to you as Bobby in that speech when he becomes Labour leader. He yes, refers very, to you as Peter. Very, it's very irritating. It's, it, it's very it, irritating. It he, because, because he always wanted me basically there in the shadows, behind the scenes, doing the media, perfecting the communications. He never actually fully reconciled himself to the fact that I wanted to be somebody politician and minister in my own right and doing my own stuff and the person who did that eventually and did me the favor of doing so was actually Gordon Brown when he brought me back in 2008 when the crisis came the banks were tearing over a cliff and taking the rest of the British economy behind them he called me up at a day's notice brought me into back into the government and from that moment on I knew I was my own person, I knew I was needed, I knew I had something to offer, and I went off and did it. And I, and I will always be grateful to Gordon for giving me the chance to do that. And did... I mean, Nothing against Tony, obviously. No, of course. But did you and Gordon rekindle that closeness in those years? Mm. Yes, we did. I, 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 I know him, I read him like a book, I believe in him, uh, warts and all. And since, why haven't Tony and Gordon kind of done an event together or something? You know, bands get back together. <laughs> Given the state of the Labour Party and the Brexit debate when they're doing stuff with John May, do you think, why don't Tony and Gordon do something? Do you think Tony would do it and Gordon wouldn't, or the other way around, or should I stop dreaming for that gig? Do you want a glass of wine? Because <laughs> I think you'll need it. The, the, wait, the, wait, the wait will be long. No, we, we tried again and again. At one point during the Hartlepool by-election, I suggested they both come and campaign together. Yeah. It was stillborn. It didn't get off the ground. It wouldn't have been... What, both well, of them, or...? No, I didn't actually put it to them in the end, but I thought of it. I thought of it. We needed to make an impact. And impact. And do they ever ask you about the other? Does Tony ever say, Peter, hi, you know, great to see you. Um, I don't suppose you've heard from Gordon lately, and, you know, how is he? And not that I'm bothered, but, you know. <laughs> Yeah, in that sort of way. Can you do Gordon just as well? No. <laughs> <laughs> that. Peter, Peter, that's the change we choose. When we say we come together not only as a community, not only as a country, as a continent, <laughs> around shared values, values that say no child should be left behind, values that say, again, Peter, never trust the Tories on tax. These are Labour values. These are the changes we choose. These are the things that we implement, not only when we come together as a party, indeed, as a nation, but when we come together as a government. I've Matt, turned into a Jordan. Matt, you have just delivered the selection speech I made to Hartlepool Constituency <laughs> Labour Party in December 1989, which Gordon wrote for me. There you go. That's the change. Hitherto unrevealed. Oh, wow. So that was a scoop. Yeah. Gordon wrote your selection yes, script. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. Unused resources meeting unmet needs. <laughs> what, was that your review of his script or is that... <laughs> no, that was my summary of what you've just said, which he wrote for me, which he's used on many occasions since, which was his 
signature. And uh, he did, he did it for me. I was very nervous, I was sort of worried how I was going to go down there. I, I, I was a backroom boy, remember, I wasn't a great speech maker, and he helped me, he helped me along. Tony did work the room, as it were, and he wrote the words. And they, both, they both helped me get into Hartlepool, because Tony was in the next door constituency in Sedgefield, and Gordon was there, <laughs> with the words. What was that? Well, you know, we always like... Typewriter. Typewriter. Thing. <laughs> Word processor. Whatever you add in 1989. God. What was it? I, I don't really remember. Well, you weren't born, were you? I was born in 82, so I'd have been a six or seven in 89. Yeah. But there were great days. <laughs> there were great days for the Labour Party. I mean, it is... You talk about... The 1980s. Lose, 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 blah, 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 lose, lose. I mean... There's probably going oh, to be it was at least great losing, you know, it was absolutely wonderful. But what, what yeah. I mean is, there's probably going to be at least another lose on the end of that list. Doesn't necessarily have to be another lose. That's my point. If, if I said to that, but I tell you, but Keir needs to be both Neil Kinnock and Tony Blair rolled into one. He's got to go further, faster. He's got to bring about that revolution in... But, but it, I suppose it depends on which bits of Kinnock and Blair. You don't want him to fall over on the beach and invade Iraq. <laughs> He'd been rehearsing that in the dressing room. <laughs> um, you know. And it's taken all this time for me to sort of cue him up. But I, I know what you mean. He needs to take on the party and do what Kinnick did in 85. And he needs to just move the party that bit more as Blair did in 94. And reach the country as Blair did in 97, 2001 and 2005. Yeah. Yeah. We do need that. I don't want this to end, Peter. It's been such a great night. What For me. <laughs> I've got nowhere to go. What do you mean? I'm staying. pulling all nighter. Sod I'm staying. We've got a bottle of wine, that'll do us. Oh, God, how am I going to get through that? Um, what do you want to ask me now? Well, I'm going to ask you my final question. Okay, what's that? So, I've got Keir Starmer on tomorrow night. What should my first question to Keir Starmer God. Okay. Ask Kia what his equivalent is going to be of Tony's tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. Shall I tell you why? Well, I'll tell you what. I might because do it through. that absolutely <laughs> cut through the whole country. Mm. There was nobody left in the country, north, south, working class, middle class, rich or poor, who didn't want to get both tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. It brought the entire country together. Now, I'm not saying, you know, but he's got to find the equivalent now. Yes. I might ask and him probably about his toe first. And probably economic. And you can ask him about his bloody toe first before <laughs> he, almost before he sat down. Peter, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, before we thank... Uh, both of our wonderful guests tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming around tonight. It's been just coming around, around the house. That's how it feels. It's been really, really brilliant. Thank you for thank coming. You. If you have tickets for tomorrow night with Keir Starmer and Andrea Ledson, you will see me um, put that question quite diplomatically to Keir Starmer. <laughs> Almost some would say in a sycophantic style, but uh, <laughs> tune in and wait to see how Matt, timid I am Matt, tomorrow night. Just try and get his name right, okay? I'll, <laughs> I'll try and get his name I right. I mean, we don't want to see a... <laughs> brilliant early end to a, what could have been a wonderful career. 
Mine or his? Mine you're talking about, aren't you? I'm talking about yours, man. <laughs> okay, you're scaring me now, so we must end so that I can live. Um, Peter, it's been a pleasure. We will thank Peter in a second. Tomorrow's show is sold out. There's another show at the Vaudeville Theatre on the 2nd of June, which is a week on Wednesday with Jess Phillips and Esther McVeigh. There's a couple of tickets there for that if you'd like to come along. You can get tickets for that through the website, mattford.com slash live. Ladies and gentlemen, firstly, please thank everyone who's worked here tonight at the Garrick on the bars, on reception. The sound and lights and tickets and everything. It couldn't have happened without them, so thank you all. Thank you all of you for coming out tonight. I've been Matt Ford, but please, the biggest thanks of the night for the one and only, Peter Mandelson. Thank you very much, good night. I mean, where to start with that? I couldn't, when he got his foot out and I was checking it for gout, I just, I mean, I obviously haven't had that many conversations with people in the last year face to face, so. It's only when you retell it, even the following day. Peter Mandelson got his foot out, and, and I was trying to tell if he had gout. And from two metres away, of course, because of COVID restrictions. Um, so I, I hope Peter gets that sorted. And if any of you are struggling with gout, like I, and perhaps Peter are, um, then do not suffer in silence. Um, go to your GP, and um, you'll have to have a uric acid level test. And who knows, maybe... The next episode of this, I'll be saying we've had an email to politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I was next to Peter Mandelson waiting for my gout blood test. Wouldn't that be a turn up for the books? Um, but I shan't, um, you know what, as well, I was just about to say, I shan't repeat myself. He started off, of course, by um, lampooning all the repetitive things I've said. So I, I shan't fall into the trap. But thank you for downloading this. Please share it. Please leave a review. That really does help on iTunes and other places and just spread the word. And um, thank you to everyone who came or has brought a ticket for these, bought a ticket for these live shows because it's just incredible. And um, man, I, I'm still just reminiscing about, about that recording is, uh, is just wonderful. So anyway, I shall leave you to it. I'll see you in a few days. Thank you for downloading this. And I'll see you soon. Ta-ra.